Hey there, stylish ThoughtBot podcast listener. We're back with another ThoughtBot swag sale. For the rest of the year, you can show your support for our podcast with shirts, pint glasses, and even limited edition socks. We have two new designs specifically for giant robots and bike shed t-shirts that have only before been available at conferences. For the production and shipping, we are proud to once again be partnering with Social Imprints, who provide career opportunities and a living wage to people who need a second chance. So help support your favorite podcasts, provide employment opportunities for at-risk populations, and get some nifty ThoughtBot swag. Head over to ThoughtBot.com podcasts to place your order and show your support. And hey, thanks. Giant robots smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today is Maria Parker, CEO of Cruise Bike. Maria, thank you for joining me. Thanks very much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. One of the things that I loved when we met at Hopscotch Design Festival in Raleigh was the story of the creation of Cruise Bike. Sure. I'm not sure which story I told you, but (laughs) what I think you might be talking about is sort of the why behind Cruise Bike, which is if there's an early adopter among the founders, it's not me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's it's my husband, Jim. So I was, um, since I had children, which is now 33 years ago starting, I started running and cycling. And I I always say that I did that so that I could get away from them. (laughs) (laughs) It was really the only time that as I was a full-time mother, the only time that I was, I was alone. So I did, I did a lot of running. I've done lots of endurance um, events because the longer the event, the more time you Mm -hmm. have to train. (laughs) So anyway, I was, I was training for a triathlon and riding my bike rather uncomfortably, but, you know, tolerating it because that's what I do well. And I was begging my husband, Jim, to to ride with me. And Jim said, um, he's a physician. No way. No way am I getting on a bike. If you knew him, you know, he just he's not going to tolerate something that doesn't make sense to him. He's all that pressure on your you know butt and your arms and your hands. And I'm not doing it. So he spent six months, literally six months, every single night on the computer trying to figure out a better way. And he had heard of recumbents at the time I hadn't. And he didn't like them because they were long and low, but he liked that they were comfortable and ergonomic. So he uh, he finally found this little kit that can convert a, a little, uh, basically a, what they used to call a Y-frame mountain bike into a recumbent bike. So it was, it was cheap. It was about 300 bucks. It was made in this little place in Australia. And he ordered one and he got it and he went to Walmart and he bought a bike and he created this ugliest sin recumbent bike. <laughs> and um, when I looked at it, I said that I would not be caught dead on that thing. You know, fine, you can ride it. But sure enough, he did ride it. And and he loved it. And we would ride and the rides were getting longer. And, and, you know, he would be just whistling and having a great old time on his on his recumbent bike. And I and I would be very uncomfortable on my traditional bike. So one day I finally out in the country, I finally said, all right, let's switch. So we switched. And for me, it was transformative because um, it brought back the joy that you experience when you're seven years old, you know, on your first two wheeler, maybe getting away from for me, I'm 54, you know, it's probably the first time I'd ever gotten away out of the sight of my parents' house on my own, on my bike, the wind in my hair. And I'll never forget, you know, riding my little blue Schwinn with the tassels. And <laughs> so it brought it brought back that joy and that pleasure. And so I said, get me one. So we, we got one and very kludgy, ugly, built up thing. But 
but we started riding and we, we were like leaving the state on our rides. Now we only live 20 miles north of the border of South Carolina, but it felt like, wow, you know, we're really doing these long rides. So we said, let's invest in this. This is something people need that, you know, we need to bring the joy back in cycling because so many people have bikes in their garages. And um, I mean, I know in my neighborhood, everybody has two bikes in their garage. You never see anybody riding their bikes because it, after a while it hurts. It's mm-hmm. uncomfortable. Yeah. And a recommend bike isn't. So we partnered with a guy in Australia who had who invented it and went into business. That's been uh, about 12 years ago now. So it started as a kit. And yeah. it's not a kit anymore, right? No, we discontinued the kit. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess it's, it was a sort of a natural progression for the company. We were really um, selling to people who didn't care at all about the way things looked, but were their engineers mostly. Mm-hmm. And they just really loved the idea of it. They wanted to be the first guy on their block. It looked like a really crazy, you know, contraption to them. When we went into business, initially, our our goal was to build them from the ground up because we realized it was very hard for people to build these bikes. You had to have knowledge, especially for me. I was I would never do that. And so we figured if we were going to really change the world and make cycling more fun for everybody, we'd better sell the thing from the ground up. So we started doing that, but we were still selling the kit. And we found that people were making sort of dangerous and bad-looking yeah. <laughs> recumbent bikes, so we discontinued the kit. So some people may be familiar with what a recumbent bike is, and, and some people maybe not. And if you're familiar with what a recumbent bike is, you can go to cruisebike.com and see some pictures. The cruise bike is different than a normal recumbent bike. Sure. Well, first, a recumbent bike is a bike where you sit on a seat rather than a saddle, and you pedal in front of you so your legs are out in front of you and that's why they call it recumbent and and different recumbent bikes have different levels of recumbents but what makes the traditional recumbent bike which was actually invented in the 1920s so it's been around for a long time um, has you pedal out in front of you and then the chain goes all the way to the rear wheel of course just like a traditional bike so on a traditional bike what's called the bottom bracket, which is where the pedals are, are underneath the saddle, and then it drives the rear wheel. And that's a little bit inconvenient on a recumbent bike because if your feet are out in front of you, the chain has to be really long. So the chain's going all the way to the, from the end of your feet all the way to the back wheel, and sometimes it's like 10 feet of chain. So you have idlers and things. To, it's, it's inefficient. But mm-hmm. the sort of inspiration of cruise bike is that we drive the front wheel. So essentially the bike in the front end is just like a traditional bike with the chain is the same length, all the components are the same. And uh, you don't have some of the other issues that you have on, on recumbent bikes. But the beauty of recumbent bikes, I'm always talking about recumbent bikes because they're so fun. <laughs> they're like riding a magic carpet. And people, because of the ruling of the of the UCI, the International Bicycling Organization back in the 30s, there was people didn't ride recumbents anymore after that because you couldn't race them in mm-hmm. UCI events. So it sort of it sort of stymied the natural progression of the bicycle frame, which would be to recumbents because we got off as horses, right? We got out of saddles mm-hmm. and we got into cars, and they didn't put a saddle on a car; they put a nice, comfortable seat. Now I've never seen one of these in person. Uh, is it higher than a normal recumbent bike? It is higher than many. So yeah, recumbent okay. bike. When you say recumbent bike, you're usually talking about bikes, trikes, what we call long wheelbase. And Mm -hmm. the reason that many recumbent bikes are low 
is because they often have a long wheelbase, meaning the front wheel and the rear wheel are a long way from one another. And the reason for that is because when you steer the front wheel, if your feet are out in front of you, there's an issue that they call heel strike. So sometimes your, your feet can hit the front wheel. So they, in order to overcome that, they spread the wheels out and that makes for a long, low bike and people perceive that as dangerous. Mm-hmm. But because cruise bike is a front wheel drive bike, we don't have to worry about that. Our feet turn with the wheel. But recumbent bikes come in all shapes and sizes. There are other other recumbent bikes that are almost as high as ours. But yeah, ours are a little bit lower than a traditional bike, but I always tell our customers that if I'm at a stop sign, I can look over and speak to the people in the driver. (laughs) I can see them just fine. And, you know, (laughs) so. What is your role now? You probably know more about bikes than you ever thought that you would. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I've spent most of my adult life with a job as a, as a mother. And so, um, once the kids grew up and left home, I had always been involved in the bike company since we started. But once I was sort of out of my first job, I went into this head first. And um, yeah, I know what a derailleur is. That's a French word. <laughs> it's the <laughs> thing that changes the gear. <laughs> I know what a bottom bracket is. Yeah, I know way more about bicycles than I ever thought I would. And I'm the CEO now. Uh, it's a very small company still, but I've learned um, so much about bikes. I still don't do my own bike mechanics. Mm-hmm. But what I do now that I didn't do before is I actually ride my bike a whole, whole lot, probably 10 or 15 hours a week. And I compete in ultra endurance races because those are races that allow recumbent bikes. Mm-hmm. So I, I spend a lot of time riding my bike in training and riding in races and riding in touring. And so just seeing the world from the position of a recumbent bike seat, of, you know, where you're sitting with your back supported is just... Mm-hmm. It's just incredible. So who does the design of the bikes? So uh, the front wheel drive, it's called, the technical term is moving bottom bracket because the bottom bracket moves. The bottom bracket is, again, where the pedals are. That moves with the front wheel. It's called moving bottom bracket front wheel drive or MBBFWD. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) you have to be in the recumbent niche and in the niche of the niche to know that, to know that. But that was actually invented by a guy named Tom Trailer in um, California, and he's still around, an inventor, an amazing guy, and he got a patent on it, which ran out, and then John Tolhurst out of Australia started building the kits that Mm -hmm. would make a regular bike into a recumbent bike. So John was our first designer, um, and then we parted ways with him a few years ago, and since then we've hired other designers to help us. But the, the basic concept of the you know, the front wheel drive was invented by um, Tom Trailer. That's neat. So the last new design, you did that on Kickstarter? Yes, that's actually the second to last bike. The, but oh, the, the second to last. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That we had a lot of success. So we've been designing these bikes and riding them. My goal in coming into the company was always to, you know, to use the term that you've heard so much of, cross the chasm. I, mm-hmm. I, I am personally not an early adopter much, you know, I... <laughs> But I feel like if my family and all the people that I work with feel this way too, we feel that if we can get people on a comfortable bike, more people will will cycle and that'll just change the world. In communities where a lot of people ride bikes, the communities are healthier and better and there's just a lot of joy and freedom uh, on a bicycle. Unfortunately, because our bikes remain small batches, they're very expensive. So we decided that we wanted to build a bike that would be as inexpensive as we possibly could make it. And um, so we did a Kickstarter for that using our technology. And it was it sold out and uh, we reached our goal in, I think, 48 hours. So apparently this desire to be comfortable and be out on a bike and to recreate that feeling that 
that when I describe it, people always nod their heads of, you know, when they were a kid on a bike is there. I think there's a lot of stuff, you know, the 80s sort of are coming back. I've been watching Stranger Things <laughs> and, you know, and just those kids ride bikes. That's what we did. We and that's how we were free. We rode bikes. And I just want adults and kids to have that feeling throughout their lives, that freedom, that joy, you know, of course, it's green and everything else. So was the Kickstarter for the T50 the first Kickstarter campaign that you had done? Yes, it was uh, our marketers. That's my daughter, actually. She yeah. works for the company, and she's our marketer, and she's she's a brilliant marketer. And you know, she decided uh, we were talking about how we were going to launch it, and she said, "Let's let's do a Kickstarter launch." It was sort of scary for us because um, we've never, you know, we've never done anything like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, the the response. Also, we've been sort of protected in this little early adopter world where. Um, everybody loves us because we're innovating and we're doing, you know, something new, you know, like Jeff Moore says, just these are the people that will accept you no matter what. And and we're pushing out into this world where people are critical, right? <laughs> you know, and they're like, what is this? And, you know, I, I think somebody wrote on there that was a dork parade and <laughs> 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 yeah, so <we're, laughs> you know, so at least they're talking about you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not the worst thing you could be called, right? <laughs> so, yeah, so that was, for me, that was um, that was different. But again, like you said, at least people are talking. And, and we got so many, you know, so much positive feedback, like, wow, like people don't even know it's a recumbent. They don't know what the word recumbent means. They just see the bike and they say, oh, that's that looks comfortable. That looks cool. That looks fun. It looks like something special. Mm, thanks. Thanks. Yeah, so the Kickstarter, uh, you had a goal of 100000 which is about a hundred backers, about yes. Okay, and so you ended up getting one hundred and sixty-two backers and one hundred and fifty-two thousand dollars, which is really successful. Was that a lot of bikes for you? Yes. Yeah, we tend to make them in batches of about a hundred. So, but we we never sold that many in two days. (laughs) (laughs) And then you know have to build them up and deliver them. And also we we care very much about our customers. So making sure that all of those backers got you know that sense that you know I was taking care of them was really important to me. So yeah, it's been a big deal now. And then we use that money to to create the second batch, which is going out in December. So it was very different for us. Like, I'd like to be able to make them in, in a thousand at a time. Mm-hmm. And when we're not really quite there yet. So in terms of Kickstarter, do you have any advice for people? A lesson that you learned that you w- wish you had done differently? Gosh, I'm, we should have Lucia on the show because she did yeah. all Kickstarter. Um, no, I, I would say be prepared for success. Um, <laughs> I think I think when she created the Kickstarter campaign, she did her homework, and she, I think the thing that she would say that she did that made it successful was to reach out and make sure that we had a group of people who would support us right away. Because the way Kickstarter works is, if you have early support, it almost it naturally brings your campaign up, and it almost guarantees more success. So because we have this incredible group of customers who were excited to have uh, an inexpensive cruise bike in addition to the two or three they already had in their garage. <laughs> the very first day they started buying it. I remember it was really fun. You know, we were watching the campaign go off and I was sitting in the kitchen looking at the computer. I just couldn't believe, you know, boom, 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 yeah. boom, next sale. So so I think Lucia would probably say making sure you have your friends and the, and the people who you know will support you backing early is probably mm-hmm. the biggest indicator of future success. 
So you mentioned that you would love to create batches of a thousand bikes. So what are some of the blockers that you have in your business to get to that point? We have lots. Um, we're not building software, so mm -hmm. we're making metal objects that have to be shipped and welded and so forth. So, and they don't look like traditional bikes. So there's a huge bicycle. Ours are right now made in Taiwan, and we're you know we're looking for suppliers in China as well. And there's huge there's a huge bicycle industry in the world, and especially in Taiwan and China. But they build bikes the way we're used to thinking of bikes being built. So we can't just go to them and say, we have a bicycle, it looks a little different. It doesn't. To them, it's completely different. They're not using tubes of the same diameter. The jigs and the welds are all all different. So mm -hmm. though it looks like a bike and we talk about it as a bike, it's completely different for our manufacturers. So we, ha we go through this, we have to go through this sort of learning curve with with everybody with our, our customers our manufacturers everybody so that's that makes it tough um and if we're going to make a thousand you know we have to be able to put a lot of money up front to make a thousand and then if there's a mistake like we in the beginning we were making batches of 50 if there's a mistake we can maybe fix that but mm -hmm. if we make a, a mistake in a batch of a thousand that's going to be problematic. And we're always innovating. We're changing it. Each time we, we, we produce a new version of the bike or we're making what we think are, are upgrades and changes to it. So so there's financial, there's the learning curve, and there's finding suppliers. So that's been super exciting and challenging for me to be going to this different culture um, and working in manufacturing. I never would have dreamed I'd be doing this and learning about aluminum welding versus steel welding, you know, the carbon fiber and molding and... Um, I just every day I get up and it's it's extremely <laughs> exciting. I'm, I'm trying to teach myself a little bit of um, Chinese so that I can at least oh, communicate. Wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so that's both a challenge and also to me one of the most fun parts. Um, you know, we talk every day. What's our challenge? What you know? What is our biggest challenge? And and my perception is I'm so deep into this world now that I'm losing sight of this. But when I first looked at my husband bike and said I wouldn't be caught dead on that. I think a lot of people feel that way. Mm -hmm. I think when they look at a recumbent bike, they say, that's weird, that's different, that's not how a bike should look. And so you have to have this person who, you know, who's open to an, a new paradigm, essentially. And, um, and we have to just keep getting out there. And, you know, Seth Godin talks about the dip. And um, I remember when we first started producing these things, I thought the first 50 we produced were beautiful. And I couldn't believe it and go flying off the shelves. <laughs> but they didn't. We've had to work for every sale. And they're coming faster now. But still, it feels like, why don't people love these things and buy them like anything? I, you know, mm -hmm. I, I don't understand. But I would just keep getting out there and talking about it. And then, you know, and then my polite friends who every day I ride with, and I ride faster and more comfortably, they're still on their traditional bikes. And, and they tell me it's that it's just too different for them. So how do you overcome that? That's difficult. <laughs> when the AirPods came out, a bunch of people were like, those look weird. And I was like, actually, they're exactly the same as the head. Like headphones in themselves look weird if you take a step back. <laughs> they do. <laughs> But they're just so normal that they don't seem weird to us. Like that you have wires hanging down from your ears is just looks weird if you think about it. Just but it seems normal. Because we've been exposed to it. Right. So how do you how do you get enough of you know, if you're a small company creating something new, especially when there's something like it, you know? So right. again, everybody knows what a bicycle should be, right? Right. And we're saying, no, this is a better bike. 
and they're looking at it and saying, mm, I don't know. Yeah, no, I don't think so. <laughs> but I think if we just could get to that point where we had enough, I mean, we've sold thousands of them all over the world, every state. In fact, I talked to a guy from Puerto Rico this morning who's going to buy one. But um, I guess to get around because he can't get gas. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you know, we've sold them everywhere. And I just keep thinking, well, if we just keep showing up and we just keep, you know, selling them, then eventually we're going to get to the point where you know, where it seems normal enough or worth it. I guess what's the, the crossing the chasm, mm-hmm. Jeffrey Moore, he says the pragmatist or who, who crossed the chasm with you, they have to experience pain. Right. They're willing to go with you if right. you can solve their problem. And our bike does solve a lot of problems for people who have back and neck pain. Right. Right. So we do find that that's who we're selling to today. These are people who just don't want to give up bicycling and they're willing to go this new platform, even mm-hmm. though they don't really want to <laughs> yeah, because it solves their issues. And do you have, how many, this is, it's going to be some huge number. <laughs> how many bikes are sold in the U.S. a year? Yeah. Gosh, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it, I it's don't a lot. Know. We can assume it's a lot. Mm-hmm. And so you're very far away probably from even crossing the chasm. Like there's oh, probably yes. still lots of early adopters out there. Yeah, I've read that recumbents, which include all bikes and trikes that are recumbent, are 2% of the bicycle industry. Mm-hmm. They used mm-hmm. to be 1%. So that's a huge jump. So yeah, we need to continue to grow the whole recumbent niche, I guess. I want to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor for this episode, Storyblocks. Have you ever built a website and needed a high-quality stock image, video, or audio? If you've tried, you've probably learned that it's a lot more expensive than you might expect. Well, Storyblocks does it a little bit differently. They have a library, including 400,000 images, 150,000 videos, and 100,000 audio clips. And you pay one monthly fee of $149 a month and you get access to the entire library. You can use anything you want in that library. Royalty-free, thousands of images, videos, and tracks. I don't really do a lot of audio, but they have it. Tom, our illustrious producer, probably could use that audio. Uh, Yeah, that's right. I was just looking for new music samples the other day, and the interface is pretty great. You can filter by mood, instrument, genre, even by beats per minute or minimum, maximum lengths. It's pretty intuitive and found all kinds of things to pick for my project. So go to storyblocks.com slash robots to get all the stock images, video, and audio you can imagine for just $149 a month. That's storyblocks, S-T-O-R-Y-B-L-O-C-K-S dot com slash robots to download anything from thousands of images, videos, and tracks and unlock discounts on millions more. Thank you to Storyblocks for sponsoring today's podcast. And now back to the show. Now, if someone gets over the hurdle and just gives cruise bike a try, what's usually their reaction? Well, it's <laughs> another sort of issue for us or, or obstacle or barrier to entry is that there is a little bit of a learning curve. So mm-hmm. a lot of people absolutely adore that. They just love that. I mean, it's not very steep. It's like you're wobbly for a little while yeah. because you're you're steering with your, it feels like you're steering with your legs at first until you're your neurons sort of learn to to pedal very smoothly, you have a little bit of wobble in the front. So for somebody who likes to appear very confident and comfortable in whatever they're doing, that that can be difficult. But for most people, that's just fun. So once they get over that, 
Well, you should read our forum. I mean, mm-hmm. it's filled with people whose lives have been completely changed by our bike. Mm-hmm. They love it. They express the same joy that I feel when I ride my bike. And the, the view of the world on a recumbent bike is much, much better than on a traditional bike because you're not looking at the ground in front of you. You're looking sort of straight ahead. And I see things. The other morning, I ride usually before dawn with my friends and I saw a whole meteor shower. It was just beautiful. Oh, wow. <laughs> Five shooting stars. And I'm, I'm talking to my, you know, my, did you see that? Did you, no, they didn't see it. They were looking at the ground. <laughs> <laughs> so you see things. So, so once people learn to ride the bike, it, it's life-changing for them. In fact, it's one of the ways we sell our bikes. Is we don't have very many dealers. So if somebody wants to test ride one, we actually connect them with an owner. And we have hundreds of enthusiastic owners who are willing to demo the bike for any stranger. Oh, that's great. Yeah, because they they love it that much. Our, we, you know, we call them the tribe too. Our tribe is terrific, and we we have these annual little get-togethers where we spend a weekend together, and they're just the most amazing amazing people. Open-minded, and yeah, I love our customers. I adore them. You mentioned you're not in many dealers. I imagine getting in dealers is difficult. It's a lot, probably a lot of work. It's a lot of work and effort to get into one dealer mm-hmm. because it's a different kind of bike. I think we're something like maybe the Elliptigo. Yes, it has wheels and you do see them in bike shops, but mm-hmm. where do you go to buy an Elliptigo? So yeah. And also dealers, independent bike shops tend to have their two or three brands and they're not really open to a new new brand. And the recumbent bike shops that do do well are selling usually to older people who need tricycles, not bicycles, mm-hmm. for balance. So yeah, dealers... Dealers haven't really worked out well for us. We have a few, and and we do send people to dealers, but we find that we get a much better conversion rate if we just if they want to see the bike. If we send them to a customer, or many many just buy them right off of our website. You know, we try to make the case on our website for why our bike is worth the risk and worth the money. How do people find out about it now, primarily? Yeah, that's a good question. And I ask that of every single customer to try to figure out how they make their way to us. And um, at first, almost all of our customers owned other kinds of recumbent bikes. So imagine, you know, engineers, like I said, and people who just they like my husband, they looked at a traditional bike and thought, why would I put myself on that when there's this alternative that's so much more ergonomic and comfortable? And really, they're faster, too, because they're more aerodynamic. And so that, so at first, we were selling to just people who had every variety of recumbent bike out there. They're just, they just loved, a new, it was a new mm-hmm. toy in their shed. And then once we started racing, we got some notoriety for going fast and being able to go long. Um, and we started attracting the attention of these people that I described who were sort of They're regular cyclists, but they found that they could no longer stay on a bicycle. And Mm -hmm. a lot of people in cycling are just crazy about it. It's an an obsession for them. So if you can no longer do this thing that you love to do, it's very frustrating. So a lot of – that's where many of our customers are coming from. People who are on traditional bikes have have cycled for years and just can no longer tolerate a saddle or the handlebars or holding their neck up. They come to us Mm -hmm. and they still see us at at an event. Or they'll do a Google search recumbent bike and we'll come up. So it's hard to tell. A lot of times it's their friends. The, a friend will be start riding one of our bikes and some of our bikes are extremely fast. And so, um, you know, the, they'll start getting beaten by their friends or they'll start falling behind their traditional friends. Maybe they're getting older or whatever and they want to go faster. Mm-hmm. And it's somewhat known that, that recumbent bikes are more aerodynamic and so they're faster. So anyway, it's they, they find us because of uh, pain or... 
it makes sense to them and they like they like something new. And so I guess that's why they're so as a group they're so likable because they're really open minded. You know, yeah. that's what amazes me. And also our customers want our company to succeed. So they'll do anything to help us and they they design products for us and accessories and they, they tell us how things could be better. I mean they're just they're just amazing. There's nothing bad about being in the bike industry. Mm -hmm. There's just nothing because it's not life or death, right? You know, I wake up every day and I'm making people's worlds better. And occasionally if you get a cranky customer, you know, you get them on the phone and they're they just need somebody to talk to. And it's there's just there's nothing bad about the bicycle industry. I also run a nonprofit that raises money for brain cancer research. I lost my sister brain cancer a few years ago, and we use the bikes. We do these long-distance bike events, and so we use the bikes uh, on that too. Mm-hmm. And that seems to gather get some goodwill for us and some attention. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear about your sister. That's terrible. Brain cancer is an awful disease. I'll just you know put a plug in. Desperate for for funding. It's they a lot of the funding comes um, based on the incidence of a disease, so mm-hmm. the number of people who actually have it. Right. Versus, <laughs> so with unfortunately, especially with the glioblastoma multiforme, you don't live with it for long. So there's not many people who have brain cancer, but many, many, many people have died from it. And so yeah, it's a tough one. What's the organization? It's called Three Thousand Miles to a Cure. We started it mm-hmm. by doing a race across the country called Race Across America. Um, so it's called 3,000 Miles to Cure. But we do other events. We do mm-hmm. other bicycle events. And we also go across the Grand Canyon rim to rim um, oh, with, wow. with yeah, it's, which is really, it's, it's a great symbol for the fight against brain cancer. But compared when I think about it, as I said, you know, when I wake up in the morning and I go to work, you know, it's bicycles are not brain cancer. <laughs> so there's nothing bad. Every bike I sell is making the world a little bit better place. But if I don't sell a bike today, it's not going to hurt anything. Mm. So you mentioned you have the second batch coming out next month. And then what's next? Well, we're, we're continuing to develop. We have four different models. We Last month, we released a brand new model called the V20. Well, it's actually a version of a bike that we've had for a while, but I'm excited about it because we've, we've made this claim that it's the fastest road bike in the world and we guarantee it. So if you buy this bike and you have it for a year, so what we, we ask people to do is buy the bike, set a a time on a particular course that they might have in their neighborhood or something on their other bike and then ride this bike. And if in a year they don't beat that time on this bike, then we'll give them their money back. So it's a super fast bike. It's the bike that I've been racing for years. And so that's been, it's, that's attracted a lot of racers and, and it's, and sort of been a fun little, a little controversy around it. So Mm -hmm. that's been nice. Then we also have bikes that are really meant for touring. And I think that's a, that's a great market for people who want to who want to see the world from a bike saddle we sell a bike that's a little bit more expensive than the T50 but that works better with uh, gears and has racks and so forth for carrying mm-hmm. things so for bike packing that really appeals to a lot of people that they want to get out there and, and they have this sort of vision of themselves you know riding along on a quiet country road on their bike but again <laughs> that's you know if, if your bike's saddle is hurting or your wrists are hurting or your neck is hurting that's not as pleasurable yeah. so and we you know as I said we try to continue to innovate so the we have a new bike coming out that's an improvement over, I think, some past models that'll be coming out in the spring. And we're always working on trying to make our bikes more solving the whole problem, as Jeffrey mm-hmm. Moore says. You know, really not, you know, in the beginning, 
you know, if an early adopter, they didn't care. If something didn't work that well, they'd just call us and we'd send them apart. But now we're working really hard on selling this complete beautiful package. And the bike actually works really well and has all the accessories that they need to do what it is that they envision doing. So that that's what we're working really hard on right now. Are bicycles in general a growing market? The bicycle industry has been flat except for electric bikes in the last two years. Electric bikes is the one sort of section where it seems to be really growing and people are electrifying their regular bikes and they're buying bikes that are built to be electric from the ground up. So other than that, the bicycle industry, from what I've read, the numbers are, mm-hmm. you know, are relatively flat. Mm-hmm. There's always new areas sort of developing. There's, you know, for a long time, it was about road bikes and racing. And then it, then it became sort of about mountain bikes and downhill. And, yeah. and, and there's gravel, what they call gravel grinders, which are long sort of, they're not like mountain bike riding, but they're off road. So it's sort of mm-hmm. dirt or gravel roads. So there's, there's always little niches that are popping up. People yeah. love the idea of a bike. I mean, they, as I said, I think it, it harkens back to when, when we were children, although our kids riding bikes nowadays, I don't know. Um, my kids do. Good. My son loves it. And he's at the age now where he can go out on his own just in the neighborhood and that freedom, he's really enjoying it. I mean, that's how old is he? He's going to be nine soon. Yeah, exactly. That's the age when, you know, that's the only way you can get away from your parents, (laughs) but not so far away. So So you mentioned e-bikes are growing. That's the obvious next question. And you don't need to talk about future products if you don't want, but is that something you've looked at? Yes. And that's all I'll say. Uh, Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I mean, I think... um, Especially for city stuff, mm-hmm. electric bikes make a lot of sense because you're doing a lot of stopping and starting, which is a challenge on a recumbent bike because your feet aren't as close to the ground. So electric bikes for commuting and for city riding, I think I think it makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And it and it gives you the same sort of feeling as long as you're you're still pedaling. I think, you know, you still get a workout. My husband had, we, he electrified one of our older models and he would sort of sail to work without pedaling too hard so he wasn't <laughs> sweaty. And then he'd pedal hard home, which, yeah. you know, and, and, you know, you can go on quiet roads and, and just get out of the car, man. I, mm-hmm. I just, I live in a very small town and literally our town is seven miles from end to end. And, and the grocery store is, one mile from where I live. And I don't know that anybody besides me rides their bike. <laughs> you know, and I think it's partly because the it seems scary and partly because, especially in these, you know, in this small town, we don't have the infrastructure that allows you the space, you know, on the mm-hmm. side of the road to be safe. So I don't know which will come first, you know, more people on bikes and then changing the infrastructure or the infrastructure changing and more people will be on bikes. I've spent a lot of time in Portland, Oregon, our warehouses in Portland, Oregon, and um, they have really mastered the bicycle culture there. You know, you really, you can, and people do, people commute to work from, you know, 15 miles away Mm -hmm. and ride all around. And it's really created a a terrific culture there. Uh, Is there anything that you want to talk about that we didn't touch on? Yes, I think. I mean, and this was sort of the theme of my talk at Hopscotch, which Mm -hmm. is that for those of us in these little and maybe there's people out there who are listening to this podcast who are in this situation where you just, what Seth calls it, the dip or whatever, mm-hmm. where you feel like you've been doing the right thing, you know, for a long time. <laughs> and sometimes you wake up and you say, why, you know, why are we not succeeding? 
And I've had so much experience with racing. And uh, I have found that when we look at the goal, which is sort of a long way, can seem a long way off, we can get very discouraged. And so what I found very helpful in my racing and in, in my professional and personal life is that I remember what the goal is and it's there. And when I'm feeling in a good mood, I think about it. Mm -hmm. But when I'm discouraged or the goal seems far away, I just pick something really close by that I know that I can achieve. It's do the next right thing. You know, I think they say that in in AA. And I call it get to the next mailbox because when I'm riding my bike in a race, Mm -hmm. that's what I'm thinking Mm -hmm. about. I'm thinking about getting to the next mailbox on the road. It's, It's a goal that I know that I can achieve. It's the next right thing. And then, you know, when I get to that one, I'll make a new decision about going to the next one. So I I tell myself this, and I would tell anybody who feels overwhelmed or discouraged about whatever it is that they're working on that doesn't seem to be, you know, they don't seem to be getting to the goal line is just try not to look too far into the distance. Just do the next right thing and, you know, sell the next bike (laughs) Uh, or whatever it is, you know, make the next good decision for you and for your company, for your family, for your, for your life. That's really great advice. And I, one of the reasons why I think it's especially great is is having done ThoughtBot for 14 years, I realize most things are not quick successes. Most businesses are not 48-hour Kickstarter campaigns that, right, that, that right. get done. We're talking years and years of effort. And to do that sustainably for a long period of time, breaking down and just taking it day by day, smaller goal by smaller goal, Really, it helps me over the long term be able to achieve what I want to achieve, to be able to do it in a way that I don't get burned out. Yeah, you seem to have done that. And yet you always also seem to be able to helicopter up and try to look at the big picture too. And I, for my experience is that I need people around me who are good at helping me with the big picture. But also I know that I can only do that on days when I feel good. <laughs> That's yeah. I mean, to be honest, I was really hung up a few months ago because I both simultaneously saw everything that needed to be worked on and could be improved. And I also felt really badly about all those things. Mm -hmm. Like there's so many things. Uh, Everything is broken. Everything's terrible. (laughs) And I just wasn't even able to get started on one thing because I was so demotivated by thinking about all of the things. And I eventually just sort of had to, I got out of that funk by saying, you know, just pick the one thing that you can achieve tomorrow right. and do that. That's exactly it. And then when I did that, lo and behold, I felt better. Yes. <laughs> and then I was able to wrote more rapidly tackle the other problems. That's exactly it. We know that when we have successes, even little successes, you get a little serotonin burst in your brain and then you can do the next thing. And I think one of the things that for me that I forget because I'm a very hardworking person like I know you are, I can forget to celebrate. So Mm -hmm. when I get to that next mailbox or we sell that next bike, I want to celebrate every single positive thing, even if it's a little celebration. And so I think yeah, break it down, do the next right thing. And then when you do that, say, yay, good job. Yeah, I have to improve with that. And I think that has permeated ThoughtBot too, is that like we, we sort of have this environment where we're doing that, we're breaking it down, we're achieving things all the time. And we certainly are not acknowledging the 
the successes when we do it. It's sort of like, okay, we did it. On to the next thing. Yes. Yeah. You need to surround yourself with people who remind you to do that. My mm. my daughter, Lucina, you know, every time we sell a bike, we'll text one another or I'll call her and say, yay, we did it. She reminds me because I would tend to just, you know, my kids say that my, my superpower is that I can suffer well. <laughs> <laughs> so but that is not something I want on my tombstone. Oh, I think it's an important trait for entrepreneurs, though. <laughs> Well, yes. I mean, I think it's it can be a terrific quality, but I'd rather have the word she she celebrated too yeah, there. So, um, and you know, you have to enjoy what you're doing. You know, you have to look at the big thing, but you also have to say, hey, you know, that was a great conversation, or that was, you know, we we hit that mark, or you know, even though we didn't hit that mark, we learned a lot, and you know, so celebration is a super important part of of living a joyful life. Well, Maria, thank you for sharing your story and your amazing product, and I wish you all the best. Well, thanks. I really appreciate the opportunity to be on your show. Um, when we were met at the Hopscotch Festival in Raleigh, I, one of the things I really liked about your your presentation was just the honesty with which you talked about sort of the issues that you came up in your company. And I love your authenticity. It's terrific. It's, it's rare. It's rare in this, this world. <laughs> Okay, one last thing before we go. For the second year in a row now, we're doing a special offer that we have where you can get a limited edition ThoughtBot podcast and swag bundle where you can get a ThoughtBot mug, limited edition socks, a never before produced giant robots smashing another giant robots t-shirt, along with a bike shed t-shirt and a ThoughtBot t-shirt. And if you want just those things individually, except the socks because they're limited edition, you can also go to ThoughtBot.com slash podcasts and order the bundle or each shirt individually. Everything we do is produced and shipped by social imprints who provide career opportunities and a living wage to people who need a second chance. So not only can you support the show, but you can support a good cause as well. Thanks very much. You can find show notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm slash 255. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. See you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, Raleigh, and Washington, D.C., let's build something great together.